guns and money. Welcome back to Conduct Detrimental. If you've been following the podcast over the past several weeks, Dan Lust and I have been making the rounds at the nation's leading law schools doing live broadcasts of Conduct Detrimental. Well, the Magical Mystery Tour has come to an end. Dan and I are back recording from our studios at our respective homes. And uh, Dan, welcome back. It's it's good to be back in our apartments. I felt like it was a well-deserved break, Dan. We went around the country, went to Minneapolis. We went to Student Sports Network, which I guess is middle of the country. And then we went to DePaul. So I feel like we're kind of just like world travelers. We're like Carmen San Diego at this point. So we deserved a week off, Dan. And we've been on a brutal recording schedule. Some good news. I'm working on making an, a, a deal with a law school in the Maldives to host our next Conduct Detrimental. That sounds very warm and sunny. So I am all for yeah. that, Dan. You know, I, I went on my honeymoon to the Maldives. So far, that's like the best trip that I've ever taken in my life. And I'm definitely angling to get back. So... Uh, maybe we could do a live conduct detrimental from one of the private islands. Talk about ping pong, table tennis, uh, soccer, uh, whatever else is of interest in the Maldives. Uh, I'm, so I'm cool with that, Dan. I had my my honeymoon in in very close, uh, very close area, an undisclosed area, but a very close area to the Maldives. Yeah, you know what the crazy thing is about the Maldives? I swear, in my entire life, it, it, I was on a private island, surrounded by water, no cities nearby. It was the best internet connection. I've ever had in my life. It's Can funny you, you say it? that, Dan. It's funny you say that because <laughs> your internet connection now is one of the worst internet connections that we've ever seen. The state that calls, I live in the state that calls Ron DeSantis, its chief executive officer and governor. So it should be no surprise that the quality level of some of our services uh, within the state aren't quite up to this uh, up to the levels of the Maldives. That so. would be that would be Florida for those international listeners that don't know where DeSantis is. But let us uh, yeah. let us dive into the topics. We've taken a week off, so we have some some kind of loaded topics today. So the the first um, we're going to hit is uh, the I guess all the rage in the NFL. You are not for at least last I checked in. You are not really allowed to openly lose games. Um, but if your team sucks and you just lose because you're trying hard, that's one thing. So we want to talk about the, the latest issues in the NFL with the Jets tankathon and, and what's going on with the firing of Greg Williams and their pursuit for Trevor Lawrence in the first overall pick. Second, Dan, a topic that's, I think, near and dear to my heart, potentially. I'm a, technically a Connecticut resident, born and raised in New York. I'm just over the border in Connecticut, but a potential uh, sign of life for Connecticut sports betting. And third, probably the biggest lawsuit we've had in the last two weeks is the Major League Baseball lawsuit against uh, insurance companies for billions. That's with a Dr. Evil B billions over uh, basically insurance coverage, which is definitely a problem we want to get to. And then the last, the case that uh, I think Dan's the foremost expert on in the entire country, <laughs> and that would be the Zion Williamson lawsuit. So Dan- Well, it, it, it pays to, you know, as a lawyer, you should know very well, it pays to specialize. But does it pay to cover the Zion case? I mean, Dan, we haven't got paid for this yet. We we hit this all the time. Someone's got to pay us something for this. It's, it's given me um, non-monetary, you know, benefits um, by virtue of reconnecting with the law firm where I used to work. You know, Zion Williamson's lawyer is Dave Winfield's former baseball agent. Uh, the, the, the lawyer's name is Jeffrey Klein, and he's a partner at Wild Gottschall. I began my legal career at Wild Gottschall uh, in 1992 after my judicial clerkship ended, and 
I knew Jeffrey Klein then a little bit. So this lawsuit has kind of brought me back on his radar. And I've gotten a chance to speak to some of my former colleagues at Wild Gotchel, with whom I've lost touch over the last couple of decades. So I don't I, I don't favor Wild Gotchel, but I certainly talked to the lawyers on both sides. And it's uh, it, it was nice to kind of kind of you know get reacquainted with some of my old you know legal colleagues and friends at a firm where I began my legal career 28 years ago. I have a story for you Dan I think that you might find a little funny. We didn't talk about this offline. I had a for my my law practice. I had a client call the firm, potential client and uh, he asked for Dan Lust, and he and he saw me bashing Rob Manfred on Twitter and uh, he wanted to have a conversation about a potential baseball case. So I think there is maybe Dan Maybe some profit that is coming to us from this podcast. Who, never, who knows? We might, we might be there. We might be there at some point. But Dan, let us uh, on that fun note. On the, we can. It's it's December. We can uh, we can hope for some new things in the year 2021. And of course, Dan, you and I love doing this for free. But someone you know sponsor wants to drop in here and drop us a few shekels. Dan, are, are you going to say no? Because I'm not going to say no. Uh, no, but we're 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 still waiting. I think we've had a couple of nibbles, but nothing. Uh, n- nothing. Actually, we did have a sponsor before you joined. I, I I'm not I'm not did, accusing. Did I- did I scare them yeah, away? Is that what you're accusing me of? Uh, yeah, we're that's gonna have to exactly what you accuse me of. We're going to have to rebuild our reputation. So you know, just just keep working on your on your skill set, and maybe maybe we can get a sponsor again. Well, so let's yeah. let's dive let's dive right into the topics before uh, yep. we scare any more potential sponsors away, and that would not be my fault. Okay. Dan, number one, let us go right uh, into the heart of the New York Jets issue. Greg Williams on this lovely Monday morning uh, is fired from the New York Jets football team. Uh, there was some speculation that he was fired over one play. So for those that were not watching in the in the uh, the red zone, which I tend to partake in, um, essentially the Jets are 0-11. They are basically staring down a, a very clear path to have the number one overall pick in the 2021 NFL draft. And the reason that people have been talking about a tankathon this year is because Trevor Lawrence is maybe the best college football prospect since Peyton Manning. He's the quarterback for Clemson. We've talked about him a lot on this podcast. You know, the Jets have lost in excruciating fashion before, but it was really the play call the Raiders won the game on. So whoever wasn't watching, the Jets were basically up less than a touchdown. I think it was a four-point game, and it was third and 10. Raiders have no timeouts, uh, and they're about 45 yards out. So I'm just going to just read something from ESPN Stats and Info, which I tweeted out, which um, I, I think is interesting. Per ESPN Stats and Info, out of 252 pass plays in the last 15 seasons that occurred in the last 15 seconds, down four to eight points, where the ball was outside of the 40, so either at the 41, 42, or across the 50. Never in, in, the, in those 15 seasons had the defensive play caller called a six-man blitz in that situation. So basically sending the house and leaving the corners in a one-on-one situation. So people kind of said once that play was called, something very suspicious occurred. So either that was Greg Williams, the Jets defensive coordinator, calling a really poor play on purpose, or it was the Jets just having a really bad defensive coordinator who doesn't know how to call plays, and that's why they're 0-12. Dan, this would not be the first, we'll say, conflict or suspicious circumstances Greg Williams had been in with Bounty Gate uh, a number of years ago with the Saints. Um, but that said, Greg Williams is no longer employed by the Jets. Our friend of the podcast, Darren Ravel, basically said the Jets had to fire Greg Williams or else they would be admitting tanking. So Dan, let me turn it to you. What, what are your thoughts overall on this tanking allegations and, and all this fun stuff? If, you know, uh, Woody Johnson or Christopher Johnson truth serum, you know, deep down, he wants to go 0-16 and, uh, and, and kind of hit the reset button with Trevor Lawrence. That's what a lot of a lot of fans in Jet Nation are hoping for. And there's somewhat of a hypocrisy built around the outrage 
over over this, you know, boneheaded, you know, defensive uh, scheme that was called. I can understand being outraged over this, and they and they justifiably called Greg Williams out for his 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 just moronic play call. But if you're a Jets fan, do you really want to have the third pick of the draft, the fourth pick of the draft in a year that Trevor Lawrence is coming out? So maybe they should give uh, maybe they should give him a bonus for calling that play. But it does it does bring to mind uh, the debate, the age old debate over whether we should be uh, rewarding teams for ineptitude every year. It just seems as if you name the sport, the NFL, Major League Baseball, not, not, not baseball so much, but in, in hockey, in basketball, and to a lesser extent, football, there, there seem to be a large segment or a growing segment of teams that, are, that have no chance at a championship and are already positioning themselves to get a top three or top five pick the following year. Anybody who follows New York Knicks basketball understands full well that Leon Rose hasn't constructed a team designed to uh, compete in the playoffs. Of course, uh, you know, they would be happy if that happened. But this is all about draft slot next year. And, and, and so much of this seems to be happening in a number of sports where only a, only a, a fraction or a small percentage of the team, certainly much less than half, have a bona fide chance of competing or, or winning a championship. And for the remainder, it just seems that a lot of the fans are looking towards the draft when they should be all in on the season. And, 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 it, and it does make me wonder whether there's a better way of going about this than just simply rewarding the worst team in the league with the most valuable asset in the upcoming draft. What you do know, you think about that? Yeah, I think the, you know, maybe from a rules making level, I, I've never really understood it. And from the Knicks standpoint, obviously, Dan, the, the only year that the Knicks have the absolute worst record is the year that they redo the draft lottery, where they basically spread out the lottery ball. So in years past, you'd really have a, a, a very good chance of getting the first overall pick in the NBA if you have the worst record. And they instituted the lottery for you know a number of years back to kind of normalize and, and kind of disincentivize tanking. So the problem in the NFL, it's, it's the opposite, right? There is no version of a lottery. You're the worst team in the NFL, you were guaranteed the first pick. So you have all the incentive in the world to tank. I think when we're, we're just kind of parsing out this jet situation, it's a, you know, obviously I thought the situation last night was interesting. I saw a Manuel Acho do a video breakdown. He basically said, in addition to blitzing six, which is you know atypical in that situation, they also Dan had a QB spy that was called on Derek Carr, and uh, Emmanuel Acho was joking that you don't call that play unless you're playing prime Michael Vick. So it's definitely a suspicious play call. Greg Williams and I was listening to um, you know part of my take. They were saying Greg Williams is known to be very aggressive and blitz in those situations, but I, I don't know. You don't you don't blitz six in that situation. You don't have a QB spy on in that situation. So I think there probably was something there. Now there's the narrative that people are saying, well, you know, Greg Williams is really just being fired the day after because they blew that lead and they lost that really close game and they're 0 12. But Dan, my my response to that and and uh, you know I don't I don't really think there's a rebuttal to that. Dan, the the reason that they're 0 12 is not because of the defense, right? It's because of a number of factors. And if it really was the reason, you know, that the Jets were 0-12 is, is why Williams got fired, Adam Gase would no longer be with the team. I, I do think that this was a, a really... I mean, I do think it comes down to one play call. I think that that play call was really egregious. Either it was 
egregiously bad, as it as in the defensive coordinator should not be calling that, or it was really obvious what the marching orders were. If anyone was watching that game, I watched it live. I had it on Red Zone. The play before that, it was a similar one-on-one coverage play and Carr just overthrew the wide receiver. So maybe you call that once. You don't call it twice in a row. It, it is very suspicious. So I'm sure there's not going to be an investigation or anything done, but it's, I mean, at least to me, a reasonable person, right? A reasonable juror, maybe at some point. I, I can't understand that play call. And, and I do understand why Greg Williams is no longer with the team. If you, if you look at the possibility that this was done, you know, intentionally for a tanking purpose, it, 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 I find that to be, you know, so implausible because Adam Gase is dead man walking. So, so is the defensive defensive coordinator who was fired today. The people who are in a position to make that decision aren't going to be around next year. There's no incentive for either of them to lose that game. What's okay? your uh, Mr. Green? Do you like, isn't Mr. Green your expression? There's a lot of incentive. Adam Gase, I think, yeah. you can tell me if I'm wrong. I think Adam Gase is in part keeping his job because he is so inept. I, I don't see the reason to fire Adam Gase. No, listen, if you fire him, Look what's look what happened with the Lions this past week. And the moment you fire Adam Gase exactly. and, and, and you bring in an interim coach, he's going to start winning games, right? I'm and not that is agreeing with you. That's that that's the last thing in the world that Christopher Johnson wants to do to you know just make a statement by firing Gase, and then they reel off three straight wins. I mean, and but let's be real here. Greg Williams has been dealt a bad hand by Jets management by the poor drafting over the past several years and the trades of ascending Leonard Williams, as well as Jamal Adams, two key pieces of their defense, and all the Jets got in return was draft capital, which has not really been deployed yet. It is a team that is bereft of any talent base on the defensive side of the ball and arguably on on, on the offensive side of the ball. So this is just a disaster. But I think when we talk about lotteries and drafts, I mean, I'm wondering when we're going to get to the point where the leagues come up with an altogether different system of, you know, parsing out the first pick of a draft. It shouldn't go to the worst team because it creates incentives, you know, to underperform solely for the draft rights. I'll I'll do you one further, Dan. I mean, beyond just the team incentivizing to underperforming, I don't want to see Joe Burrow with the Cincinnati Bengals. They're terrible. And guess what happened? He's out for the year. I don't want to see Trevor Lawrence with the Jets because they're terrible. In addition to incentivizing losing, it's not really fair to the top player in the country. And I've, I've seen people make this argument online. I mean, and it just makes sense. It's it's not fair to put the best talent. They work so hard. They're the top of their game. Dan, if I was the top graduate at Harvard Law School, if you then slotted me into the worst law firm and there was mud on the floor and, right, there were just people robbing the place left and right, it was just the worst law firm, that's a huge burden to put on me to turn around that organization. And, you know, in a sense, Joe Burrow was literally thrown to the wolves. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, the Jets. I don't, I don't see why we'd see anything different. The Jets are a, a really poorly run franchise and have been for years. Who would be the worst law firm in the country to work for? I mean, if anything, Giuliani should get the top overall pick if there were a draft of lawyers who's got the worst record. I think whoever does Rudy Giuliani's uh, hair dye is actually uh, the worst organization. Let us move on to topic number two, Dan, because I, I am interested to get your thoughts on this. Obviously, uh, born and raised in New York, but uh, I am in Connecticut, Dan. So if you're going to tell me that there is uh, some big news in Connecticut sports betting, I'm all for it. So, Dan, I, I've been watching your feed, Darren Ravel. I know a lot of people are talking about it. Fill us in on this interesting legal debate at the heart of the uh, Connecticut legalization. 
Yeah, Darren went to the source last night. He gave me a call Sunday evening to advise me of the impending deal between DraftKings and the Mashantucket Tribal Nation of Connecticut. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the name Mashantucket Tribe, they are probably the most successful tribal gaming operator outside of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. They, they were one of the first tribal casinos in the nation. And for those who live in the north, in the New York metropolitan area, you've probably been to the Foxwoods Casino. Well, that's the Mashantucket Tribe. I've been to Foxwoods. It's great. Yeah. I mean, that was the first casino outside of Atlantic City that I've ever been to. And right now, Connecticut, while it's not a major you know, state in terms of population, it does have the geographic significance of bordering New York State and Massachusetts uh, so that any sports wagering law that comes onto the books, let's say a mobile wagering is legalized and then New York and Massachusetts are still you know, status quo, it could make Connecticut a, uh, a major player in the gambling landscape because of all the New Yorkers, the New York City residents, Boston residents who are going to drive to Connecticut conceivably. I mean, they could go to New Hampshire if they live in Boston, but it, it, it creates a um, super or a larger market given the bordering states that surround Connecticut. So DraftKings, which is one of the largest uh, fantasy sport, uh, number one fantasy sports company, also one of the largest online mobile sports betting platforms, they signed a deal with the Mashantucket tribe of Connecticut to basically be their exclusive provider for online sports betting if and when sports betting becomes legal in the state of Connecticut. Now, this is why it's a topic worthy of conduct detrimental. We try to talk about some legal issues on the show and, and less the financial aspects of the gambling industry, but Connecticut poses a very interesting legal issue because there's a, there's a battle going on right now between the state government and the Indian tribes of Connecticut, which are basically two of them, the Mashantucket tribe and Mohegan Sun, over the meaning of these words in a compact uh, that was signed 25 or 26 years ago. Under language in something known as a memoranda of understanding, both tribes are, are, are making revenue sharing payments to the state of Connecticut uh, based on their slot machine revenues. In return, the, the state has promised not to authorize any commercial casino games. And there's a debate right now over the meaning of the word commercial casino games. And the, tri the two tribes have basically uh, stymied the efforts of the state government to, uh, to legalize sports wagering and mobile betting for, for all the uh, stakeholders in the state. Uh, on, on one side of, of things, you have the Connecticut Lottery, and the 16 off-track betting locations that want to participate in sports betting in Connecticut. And the, and the two tribes are saying, hold on one second. If you do that and you allow the OTBs and you allow the lottery to participate, you're violating our right to exclusivity because, because sports betting is a commercial casino game. And if you do that, then we're one, we're going to sue the state. And two, we're going to stop paying you. Uh, our percentage or the, or the guaranteed percentage of slot machine revenues that are called for under a 25-year-old compact agreement. So uh, this, this issue uh, is really, I guess, the deal that was signed yesterday has kind of, you know, uh, elevated the discussion around the topic of who's going to get sports betting in Connecticut? Will the tribes prevail on that battle? And is this ultimately headed to a courtroom in, in, in Connecticut 
for an interpretation of those words. So Dan, you know, since you're a casino uh, veteran, now that you've been to a couple of casinos, do you consider sports betting to be a commercial casino game? I mean, Dan, I haven't just been to a couple of casinos. I've been to all of the casinos in, in the entire world. No, I, I, I want to say that I, I kind of understand this argument, Dan. It's funny. When I go to a casino pre-COVID, obviously, I spend the majority of my time, if not all of my time, in the sports book. I don't. I mean, some, back in the day, maybe I'd sit at the blackjack tables, I'd play some poker, but I'm generally in the sports book. So I, I understand why the casinos are trying to exert jurisdiction over this particular ground. I get it. I don't really think you could parse them out at a certain point. And Dan, you and I have coincidentally had this conversation on the podcast, whether you want to call your industry you know, gambling law or sports betting law, you know, at a certain point, I, I think they're almost indiscernible. Like a, there's a group of friends that I, you know, that, that, that don't, that I have that don't gamble, right? When I say gamble, they don't play poker. They don't play blackjack. They just hang out at the sports book, but that's all in the casino's world. So I kind of, um, I'm kind of buying this argument, Dan. And uh, to the last point you kind of brought up, if this does come to a Connecticut courtroom, Dan, you can, you can have my couch for the night. How about that? You can have my couch free of charge. You don't even have to stay at a hotel because I have a feeling, Dan, either A, you're going to be covering it, or B, you might be the lead expert on the case. What do you think about that? How about, how about some odds, Dan? Would you say you're like plus 200 to be called for this case? Highly likely that I'm going to be involved in some Highly level likely. in that. Yeah, and for your, for your sake, I hope you don't live near Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, because that's going to be the locus or at least the nerve center of, I think, litigation and any legislative hearings around sports betting. But let's get back to the core issue of whether sports betting is a commercial Don't you want to know if I live in Hartford, Connecticut? Do you? I do not. <laughs> okay. Good for you. Well, and for those, for those who stick around until the end of our program, our outro song is Brass Bonanza, the former theme song for the Hartford Whalers. So we do have a Hartford connection built into this show every episode. But let's for a second step back and think about what a casino game is. When you, when you go to race books across the country, you know, there are sports books where you can also bet on horse racing. So if you were going to bet on the Kentucky Derby, if you went to a race book at a casino and bet on the Kentucky Derby, do you view what you're doing as casino gambling or is it sports betting? You asking me or that is more of a hypothetical? I'm asking you. It's also a rhetorical question, uh, but I think you know the answer to that. Well, I think it's, I mean, I, I'm going to say that I think it's one and the same. I don't see why that would be different than me betting on a betting on a normal football game. If I'm watching him on the big screen, I don't, I don't really see a difference in that. Casino? Does that make it a, a, a casino style game? I mean, you can you can no. go to sports. You can go to sports style game, but I think it's under okay. the same. But I, I follow you. Okay, I'm buying it. Yeah, I mean, they have sports wagering horse race tracks uh, at bars and restaurants, and heck, you can even go to the Capital One Arena in Washington D.C., where the Wizards and and the Capitals play their home games. And you could go to the in-arena sports book. Maybe, maybe not yet because the, the games aren't you know, available to be played in front of an audience. But the ticket windows, the box office, that's where they're, they're writing you know, tickets on sports bets. So sports betting is the kind of game that could be played in a number of different venues. But ultimately, I think what this comes down to is a matter of contract interpretation. And ultimately, this, is the, this legal issue, if it ever heads to a courtroom or goes to an attorney general for an advisory opinion, it will really come down to three core issues. Uh, one, what was the intent of the parties, namely the governor of Connecticut and the Indian tribes when they signed this agreement in 1994 uh, to include the language for commercial casino games? What were they trying to accomplish? Were they trying to accomplish exclusive overall forms of gambling? 
or a very specific genre of gambling. And I submit it's going to be the latter because back in the 1990s, there were a number of other casino operators, especially Steve Wynn and the Mirage that were making a play for Connecticut. And I think this language was designed uh, to block any effort to bring other types of table games to Connecticut. And then the issues, the other issues that will be looked at by the court are what is the character of a casino game? And when I think of a casino game, I think of games that are commonly and exclusively played within a casino, like roulette, slot machines, banked card games, you know, dice games. Sports betting, on the other hand, is activity that is really centered on events that are external to a casino environment. The games are played at venues all around the country, and the outcomes are decided external to the four walls of a casino, whereas a casino game is managed and determined and played entirely within the four walls of a casino. And then another way of looking at this before we move on to the next topic is casino games are, are basically understood to be games involving luck or chance. Whereas I think sports betting entails much more skill in order to be successful. So I think when you look at the, the character of the games themselves, as well as the original intent of that 1994 agreement, I think you really can, you're, it really comes down almost decidedly on the side of sports wagering not being a commercial casino game. However, that being said, Dan, the mere threat of litigation and the possibility that the, that the, that the two tribes will basically stop payment on all of their you know, slot machine revenues, I think that that would give the state some pause about moving forward with other stakeholders in addition to the tribes. So I think there's a lot of downside risk here for the state of Connecticut. But as I've you know, stated on, uh, on television in Connecticut tonight, I was live on television in the state of Connecticut. I think it's a slam dunk case for the state. It's just a question of whether they want to court that litigation and move forward with a bill that would give something to everybody as opposed to just giving uh, sports betting to the two tribes. So I, I think we'd be remiss if we brought up Connecticut and we didn't mention uh, Danbury. Dan, are you familiar with Danbury's newfound fame? My only dealings with Connecticut is that that's the home of Brian Leach and that's the home of the New York Rangers farm team. Other than that, I have not had too much interaction or exposure to the state of Connecticut. So fill me in on Danbury. Is this another Dan? Um, I didn't, that's not even why I brought it up, but I guess that is also a good reason. So John Oliver was, for whatever reason, John Oliver was making fun of Danbury, Connecticut, for whatever reason. He did some skit on them, and he basically said at the end, and they have a sewage plant, and you should name your sewage plant after me because I'm John Oliver. And Dan, this is uh, just 2020 being a very weird thing. John Oliver now has a sewage plant named after him in Danbury. It's called the John Oliver Memorial Sewage Plant. So Danbury, Connecticut, known maybe for sports betting uh, and known for the John Oliver sewage plant. Cool. Okay, Dan, let's let's move to our third topic, which, and a lawsuit which I know got a lot of attention last week. So Major League Baseball uh, is taking on the insurance company. So uh, we've talked about this in prior shows. I used to be in this insurance defense world up until fairly recently. So I know very well insurance companies have a lot of money. Um, if insurance companies put their foot down, it's kind of hard to get them off it. What, what has kind of come to light during this COVID situation across the country, a number of businesses have now realized that what they thought when they were getting business interruption coverage is a fancy way of saying, if your business gets shut down or you're unable to conduct your business for whatever reason, 
um, it's quote unquote interrupted and you purchase a particular uh, insurance policy for that. So what people kind of had had a rude awakening is that a virus is not, at least under most, if not all insurance policies, not a covered event. It doesn't really uh, lead to an event where your business is properly interrupted. That's mainly for if you strike, uh, I'm not a striker, but um, uh, like a lightning strike or a flood or some type of property damage, but it's not meant to be a virus, at least as the insurance companies have argued it. So across the country, from restaurants um, to any number of businesses, they've been trying to plead with their insurance companies to get business interruption coverage. And the, the insurance companies are putting their foot down, they're getting sued in court, and insurance companies are winning, either A, because of the language isn't covered, or B, there's an exclusion, which definitely, which essentially rules out viruses from being a covered event. So Dan, I was a little surprised to see that Major League Baseball, one of the, uh, we'll say the most uh, wealthiest companies in the entire country is now taking on the insurance companies head on. So Major League Baseball and 30 franchises um, have now kind of joined this list to challenge their insurance policy. So unlike maybe like a restaurant or like a mom and pop organization or like a garage or a mechanic, Major League Baseball is a billion dollar company and they purchased according to them, I'm just reading uh, from quotes from the complaint, the, they've bought top flight policies that are supposedly all risk, all quotes, all risk in their design and quote specifically, they insure against physical loss or damage arising from communicate, uh, communicable diseases caused by a virus. So they're arguing, and we've seen uh, Dan uh, in this past really two weeks, the Atlanta Falcons sued, the minor league baseball teams have sued, but no one quite has the pockets like major league baseball. So they're coming in, they're saying that no exclusions apply. We purchased an all encompassing risk policy and we deserve, it to, we deserve to be covered for our loss. And Dan, I'll, I'll turn it back to you on this. This is a $1.6 billion alleged loss, maybe even a little bit more than that once they factor everything in. I don't think Major League Baseball goes to court and loses that often. Just as far as, as long as you and I have been dealing with these cases, Major League Baseball is usually on the right side of history when it comes to their lawsuits. Dan? Remember a lawsuit called Christie versus National Collegiate Athletic Association renamed Murphy versus NCAA? That was the case we're going to you know everything ties back to sports betting but the united states supreme court decision overturning paspa was a loss for major league baseball in the courtroom they were one of five uh, sports federation defendants along with uh, nba nhl ncaa you know at all so you know they you do lose once in a while you can't win them all day but major league baseball is generally on the right side of history so dan let me let me spin it to you. You know, outside of the merits of this case, what what do you think if if Major League Baseball, we'll say, loses this case, right? They lose on the one point six million that they're trying to get. How do you think that impacts baseball long term? With the revenues uh, that, that that baseball historically has generated, I know these are tough times with COVID nineteen, but the the owners of the teams themselves are are for the most part billionaires. You know, it's hard to get worked up over a, a litigation brought by an industry where every stakeholder is a billionaire. Steve Cohen, whose name has you know, surfaced you know, almost on a weekly basis on this show, is, is, is worth $14.5 billion. I think these, these suits are kind of like double-edged swords because while Major League Baseball may have a bona fide or valid claim here, it does open up the unintended consequence or the intended con consequence of discovery and depositions and opening the books up of every team and, and the league itself. And uh, as you may recall from a couple of years ago when the National Football League sued its insurance carriers over the latter's failure 
to fund the concussion litigation settlement, there's a lot of sensitivity and reluctance of these leagues and teams to participate in discovery where they're going to have to provide transparency that could ultimately land at the doorstep of players' unions. Dan, you you bring up a good point. This is not a normal lawsuit, especially the current CBA expires in December of 2021. We spent a lot of time during the you know labor strike issues uh, during the on- early onset of COVID, but this is essentially a window into Major League Baseball's books, which the players' union doesn't get, and albeit they don't normally get it uh, a year before they get to the negotiating table. So this doesn't appear to be a case that Major League Baseball thinks they're going to lose on, and it doesn't appear to be a case that the insurance companies are going to lose on. And when, Dan, you have that, that generally leads to at least some prolonged discovery, not necessarily not necessarily all the way to trial, but you may have a world where these books are opened up in a way that might give uh, the players a heads up as to what's going to come in. Again, just a little bit more on on the you know the interesting. I don't know if it's, it's interesting, but interesting at least to me on on the virus. Friend of the podcast and your co co professor, I think Michael McCann points out that. This could come down to an issue, the word or. So I'm just reading an article he posted on uh, on Sportico, his his new company. There's going to be an issue that says this: their policies cover physical loss or damage. Now, there's a question that's not really that interesting for purposes of normal practice, but insurance coverage law, which I know I have a lot of friends in that space, if it causes physical loss and damage, right, can that really be the difference of a $1.6 billion policy? So um, I know I have my my insurance, my friends in the insurance defense industry that listen to this. For once, maybe in their careers, there is a sports issue in the insurance realm. Damn, I know you brought up the NFL case, but like maybe it's like once every three years that people care about insurance law, which maybe isn't such a bad thing. I don't think we need to hear that much about insurance law. I'm I'm more into the Rock bankruptcy cases. I think the Rock needs to do more things so we can have another specialty wrestling episode. I'm totally down with that. Let's, uh, I, I have a couple of more uh, comments about this Major League Baseball versus insurers case. It was filed in, you know, uh, Alameda County Superior Court, um, which is a state court in California, and it wasn't filed in federal court. And the reason it's in state court and probably can't be removed to federal court is that the uh, there there is lack of complete diversity. You know, every major league team has sued. Uh, which basically covers all the major states and, and, and the insurance company group includes several insurers who are incorporated in Illinois, which is where the Cubs and the White Sox are, you know, established as business entities. So with an Illinois, two Illinois teams and two Illinois insurers, this case will likely remain in, in state court as opposed to being removed to federal court. But I was really shocked by the residency or at least the states of incorporation of all these major league baseball teams. You know, roughly a third of the teams are from Delaware. I didn't realize Delaware has major league baseball franchises. The Mets, Sterling Equities, is a Delaware corporation. And would you be shocked to find out that the Yankees aren't from New York? The Yankees are an Ohio corporation. I've been a Yankee fan since 1977. That covers 43 years of my lifetime. And it it was only today when I reviewed the complaint that was filed by Major League Baseball did I learn that the New York Yankees aren't even from New York. They're an Ohio business entity. The shock that that I've undergone, I think I might have to become a Mets fan and move to Delaware where the Mets are incorporated. Dan, maybe for as much as we mentioned Steve Cohn, there is a tie-in for you. It's basically saying if Steve Cohn becomes a client of yours, you will shift your allegiance over to the New York Mets. I'm counting them, Dan. I, this is like the 10th episode in a row. I'm on to you. 
I'm on too thin. So if elected, I will serve. Uh, <laughs> I, I Steve, know you will. Um, if Steve Cohen picks up the phone and wants to talk to me about sports betting or any other issue, uh, I would I would say that I'm a fair game to, be, to to go back to my original loyalties. I was I was born and bred a Mets fan, and it was only after 1976 when the Mets were inept and they they did all these terrible uh, things to mismanage the team, including trading Seaver in '77. I, I I became a Yankees fan. But now I think the pendulum is swinging back. I don't think I'm going to not stay. I'll be. I'll always be a Yankees fan. But I'm. I'm really liking what Steve Cohen is bringing to the table. His engagement on Twitter has been so much fun to watch. But you know, who knows how this lawsuit will uh, will, will pan out? Usually these lead to settlements, but you know, it, it will be years before this ever sees the inside of a courtroom because of all the parties that are involved. There are roughly 30 plaintiffs, a number of different insurers. This is a really complex you know, business litigation that will involve significant time needed for discovery with so many discovery battles that, that are you know, lying in wait here. So if there's not a settlement, I don't think there'll be resolution of this controversy for what could be years. Not to kind of beat it dead, people were saying, uh, you know, and, and friends of mine, that the insurance company has litigated this in courts around the country. I think there's been hundreds, if not thousands, of lawsuits filed on this exact argument. Um, and obviously, every policy is going to be a little bit different. But you know, uh, seeing that landscape, Major League Baseball is not going to. I mean, just th- put it put it like this way: there's already been all of those lawsuits. If Major League Baseball was the first to file their lawsuit, fine. They don't really know how the courts are going to view these exclusionary policies and how they're going to treat the virus in general. But if Major League Baseball, it's almost like a game of poker. If you see a guy in front of you bet, another guy raised, another guy re-raised on top, um, you got to know that the third guy has got a good hand because he's seen the other two guys, you know, he's seen really what the table is doing in, in front of you. So Major League Baseball has basically seen all these cases get kicked out of court and plaintiffs get embarrassed and, and you know, waste money filing all this, these fees. And despite seeing all of that, they're coming into court. It's a, you know, it's a massive complaint. I think it's 60 plus pages, which is not really that typical for these type of lawsuits. And they've hired a really prominent law firm that has been involved in NFL litigation. They're involved in the Dan Snyder litigation, a lawsuit that uh, seemingly, right, if, if there's no exclusions that apply, I'm not really sure how the insurance companies are going to defend it. So that said, insurance, insurance finds a way to win these, but we'll see. It's, uh, you know, again, we don't really talk about insurance law that much, but $1.6 billion, you know, we, we got to kind of talk about it because uh, that's a number that that is high enough to literally impact the salary cap if that money can go back into baseball's pocket. So, Dan, let us transition to our fourth and final topic. I have a question, Dan. When, when you go to bed at night, do you just say the word Zion Williamson in your sleep? Have, uh, but in my, in, in my apartment, I have these like monitors, monitors all over the apartment that display the Pacer page for the uh, Zion Williamson's federal court uh, you know, case in, in North Carolina. It also, I have a separate monitor for the third district court of appeal website, a third one for the Miami-Dade County circuit court action. I'm monitoring the dockets uh, in real time on an around the clock basis. I no, think case intrigues yeah. When one of these attorneys sneezes, Dan, you're on top of it. People are glued to your Twitter feed. But anytime you mention the words breaking in the same sentence as Zion, your Twitter feed it starts blowing up. So, Dan, why don't you, you break us down? I know there's been two updates in the past couple of days. First, the jurisdictional ruling and then uh, another update on uh, the judge's financial uh, potential financial uh, interest in the case. I, I'm not going to go back and, and just you know cover the history of the whole case, but for those who are new to this story, Zion Williamson has been sued by his former marketing agent for terminating uh, their marketing deal. The case is pending in two different states. 
Zion has brought a declaratory judgment action in North Carolina. His former marketing agent has sued him for breach of contract in Miami-Dade County Circuit Court. Williamson has wrested jurisdiction away from Miami and is litigating this case in North Carolina, largely because North Carolina has a favorable athlete agents law, which could result in the invalidation of his marketing agreement with Gina Ford. So what's taking place in Miami is that Williamson is challenging the issue of whether a Miami-Dade County Circuit Court can exercise long-arm jurisdiction over him. The trial court denied his motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction, and he's taken an appeal of that to Florida's Third District Court of Appeal. And last, late last week, the appellate court reversed the lower court issued, a, a, I think, a 14-page opinion ruling that, that the allegations of the Miami-Dade County lawsuit against Williamson failed to allege sufficient jurisdictional facts to subject Williamson to personal jurisdiction in Miami. So unless Gina Ford's attorneys amend their lawsuit, which they're going to be given the right to do, Williamson can only be sued or countersued in North Carolina. So this ruling essentially, I guess, fortifies the North Carolina federal court action as the main forum for resolving this controversy, because we're waiting right now for a, for a ruling on Williamson's motion for judgment on the pleadings in North Carolina federal court that could, the, the outcome of which could end up collapsing the entire litigation. So I think the delay on the Miami side of things has allowed Williamson to litigate the case in his preferred forum which is North Carolina, because that forum would likely, more likely than not, follow the North Carolina Athlete Agents Act, which gives him a clean break from the contract. And, and, and it's precisely why Gina Ford has tried to steer the case away from North Carolina and to try to bring a parallel suit in Miami. And so far, she's failed in her efforts to keep this, to keep the main part of the case, at least in Miami-Dade County. So that's Issue number one, the second issue that you alluded to is that there's a hearing scheduled on January 8th in Miami-Dade County on a motion to compel that was filed by Creative Artists Agency, CAA, which are the new agents for Zion Williamson. They are raising the issue of the judge's financial entanglements in this case. Uh, judge David C. Miller is a Miami-Dade County Circuit Court judge presiding over the Miami-Dade County lawsuit in which Williamson, Gina Ford, and CAA are involved. Miller's son is a partner at a law firm called Morgan & Morgan, and Morgan & Morgan is representing a gentleman by the name of Cedric Hughes Johnson, who was suing, G who has sued Gina Ford, alleging that she reneged on an oral agreement to pay him a 5% cut of everything she makes off of the Zion Williamson off of the Zion Williamson deal. And while Johnson and Ford have settled that lawsuit, Johnson's attorneys, Morgan and Morgan, have filed a notice of interested party in the litigation involving the main litigation between Williamson and Ford. And that raises the specter of, you know, how is Morgan and Morgan being compensated? And if they're getting a contingent fee deal from Cedric Hughes Johnson, they have a financial interest in the outcome of the litigation between Ford and Williamson. But the judge who's overseeing the case has a relative, namely his son, 
who is financially interested in the outcome of the case that the judge is overseeing, which you know might lead to a recusal, or certainly uh, I think we could be headed for a motion for disqualification. Now, from Zion Williamson's standpoint, that might be irrelevant because right now he's not subject to suit in Florida, but CAA is separately litigating that issue against Gina Ford in Miami-Dade County Circuit Court, and they may want to recuse or disqualify Judge Miller based upon his son's firm's relationship to the case. At what point in is it is it potential financial interest so I don't know tangential? I mean, I don't I don't really think it's that close where someone should where the judge should get kicked off the case. Uh, it seems to be a little distant for me, and I mean, mm. I don't I don't know. I mean, I understand why it's being brought up. Do you think this is something that's going to get the the judge taken off the case? This falls under the categorization of what I like to call bad look. And you're right. I think, Dan, you're right. Under a strict legal analysis of the law surrounding recusal and disqualification, a family member of the judge having an indirect financial stake in the outcome of the litigation may not be nearly enough to justify disqualification under federal case law that I've I'm familiar with. Now, Florida, that's an entirely different story. This is going to be decided under state, you know, uh, judicial ethics laws. And while it may not be a uh, disqualifiable relationship, it does raise the question of whether the judge should continue to serve as the trial judge over a case in which his son's company, in which the son has an equity interest, stands to profit depending upon the outcome of the case. Now, if, if, if this firm had been paid or is being paid on an hourly basis, then there's no stake in the in the subject matter of the litigation. But I, I, I suspect that the billing arrangement between Cedric Hughes Johnson and Morgan Morgan is a straight contingent fee such that if Gina Ford prevails on her claims against Zion Williamson or CAA, Cedric Hughes Johnson will get a percentage of what Gina Ford recovers. And then in turn, Morgan and Morgan will have its own contingent fee deal with Cedric Hughes Johnson, in which they get paid a fee based upon a percentage of Johnson's recovery. So it really calls into question the propriety or at least the appearance of a conflict of interest. And I think the judge should just step aside here and uh, give this to another trial court judge in Miami-Dade County. It's just not worth the bad publicity. And it does call into question. I think I think if you're the public or if you're following this case, it could serve to undermine public confidence in the integrity of the judicial system where a judge has a family member with a financial interest in the case. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I understand why the judge would need to step down. And I, I don't to, you know, to your point, Dan, I don't know why the judge would be fighting to stay on the case. It's not a good look, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't think it's necessarily a compulsory step down, but it's to your point in terms of uh, the judge voluntarily stepping down. I think that does make a lot of sense. Well, the reason he's keeping the case is because well, of star power. Because we're talking about him right now, but for, for yeah. optics, I mean, I, again, my, my point is just that I don't think there can be a compulsory step down from this. It's, I mean, it's you know, it's relatively close, but for your your you know your point is well taken. I mean, other than the star power, right? Like you could just lose on the optics and the ethics of staying on a case that maybe questionably you were a little bit close to. So, I mean, I, I understand on that sense. Only judge in in the history, my history of following proceedings like this, who's ever taken media appearances on the record at an oral argument or a hearing on a straightforward discovery motion. He strikes me as really being enthralled with presiding over the Zion Williamson case. I mean, this is a judge who probably has hundreds, if not a couple of thousand cases on his docket, most of which are fairly pedestrian. 
And a Zion Williamson NBA superstar lawsuit doesn't come around very often. This case has a lot of you know, a lot of interesting issues, and it's a fascinating case both for you know sports lawyers as well as you know those who are interested in amateurism issues. And he may want to be keeping he may want to keep this case so badly that he keeps he continues to rule against Zion Williamson just to keep Williamson in his courtroom. And he got reversed over it. So I, I, I do question whether he can fairly rule on this case, knowing that his son stands to benefit from a loss by Zion Williamson. I think that'll put our, our Zion issue in the book. So this has uh, been our return to the normal format of Conduct Detrimental following our, our live brigades. Dan, anything else to add before we put this lovely episode in the books? No, I think we, we covered a number of good issues today, and it's just good to get back into the swing of things. As always, you can find Dan Wallach on social media at Wallach Legal, myself, Dan Lust, at Sports Law Lust, the show, Conduct Detrimental, at Conduct Detrimental. And for Dan and myself, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.